This is episode 3 of Cinescope, and I'm still here, Chief. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and joining me today is Eric Skull to talk about one of his favorite films, Frequency. Eric, how are you? I'm great, man. How are you? I am very excited to have you on the show. How about you tell us a little bit about yourself so people who uh, maybe haven't heard of you before know who you are? Sure thing. My name is Eric Skull. I live in Chicago, Illinois. And if you do listen to some nerdy podcasts, you might have heard me before. I co-host a bi-weekly Harry Potter podcast called MuggleCast, which has been going since 2005. And I also have a Game of Thrones podcast called Game of Owns since the show's second season. But that's not all. I'm on another Harry Potter podcast called Alohomora. I sometimes guest on a Star Wars podcast called Resistance Radio through Hypable.com, and I'm an editor for the fantastic improvised Star Trek podcast, which you should go and check out as soon as possible. But none of those are movie podcasts necessarily, and so I've always wanted to be on a movie show like Cinescope, and I'm thrilled that you asked me, Chad. Yeah, I mean, I've been a MuggleCast listener. I checked my iTunes library. I think I have episodes on there all the way back to 2006. So I haven't been there since the very beginning, but pretty close. 2006 was once once it got good. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, so I'm I'm a longtime listener, big fan. I support it on Patreon and everything. It's a great show, and any Harry Potter fan should definitely check that out. Yeah, for sure. Uh, That's been going. We actually just passed our 11th birthday, which means uh, that we can get our Hogwarts letter now. Oh, yes. I believe that's how that works. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) We're looking looking forward to that and uh, term starting in just a few weeks. September 1st, right around the corner. You bet. Okay, just a couple of reminders before we jump into our discussion today. Sharing this podcast with others who maybe think similarly to you or who also love movies would be a big help. And so would rating and reviewing on iTunes. If you can hop over there, give us a four or five star review if you feel so inclined. That's going to be a big help to this podcast. Maybe get us on the new and noteworthy in the TV film category and help more people to find us. So let's go ahead and jump into our movie discussion. So we are talking about a movie that you recommended, Eric, that's called Frequency. Absolutely. This movie was released back in 2000 on April 28th and was directed by Gregory Hoblet, who, from what I saw, has mostly directed TV episodes from shows such as Hill Street Blues, L.A. Law, NYPD Blue, and The Americans. So some police procedural kind of things, uh, which really sort of puts him at home in this movie. Mm, Yeah, I didn't actually think about that. That's very true. Yeah, it was written by Toby Emmerich, who I'm not sure has any relations to Roland Emmerich, the director. Yeah, and there's there's an Emmerich in the cast as well. <laughs> right. The music for this movie was written by Michael Kamen, who wrote all four Lethal Weapon movie scores, the scores for the first three Die Hard movies, the Bond film License to Kill, The Iron Giant, the first X-Men, and the theme for Band of Brothers. So he's very celebrated, very good composer. He unfortunately died in the early 2000s. I don't remember which year, but he's no longer with us. He left a legacy of great film scores, including this one, which unfortunately never saw an official release. 
some of those in addition to frequency are also like my favorite movies i don't know how you feel chad but like die hard for instance and the iron giant very very emotional film and x-men absolutely so you never quite know until you look up these composers like man just how much they affected your life and some of your favorite movies yeah the iron giant in particular is one of my favorite animated movies and it's one of brad bird's earliest features Mm -hmm. if not his very first it's very good i actually have that soundtrack on vinyl oh nice yeah it's pretty cool i got it at record store day earlier this year so oh that's cool yeah and this movie does star dennis quaid jim caviezel and elizabeth mitchell nice so eric what was your first experience for this movie my first experience was (laughs) i remember this very 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 clearly It was back in, obviously, like right before the movie came out in like April or May of of 2000. And I first found out about this uh, movie coming out because the trailer was featured on uh, Movie Phone, AOL Movie Phone. It was what AOL did back then to like just highlight upcoming movies. And we were still on AOL dial-up and I clicked on this trailer. I was like, oh, Frequency, that sounds interesting. And I remember liking Dennis quite. I was only like... Uh, I was less than 13 at the time. But anyway, I, I clicked on the trailer and I watched it. Uh, and I'll just never forget, I was so persistent because this movie looked so good that I had to keep clicking and buffering on like real player to get the the full thing. Like I had to, it, my connection was being shoddy. So my first memory of this movie is just listening to, you get like four seconds into the trailer and then have to restart. And then you get six seconds in and then you'd restart. <laughs> I, I seem to remember stuff like that for the early Harry Potter trailers too. Yeah, it was just insane. And so like, and the trailer of course plays it like really plays up the thriller aspect as well as the sci-fi, but it's like, I still remember the voice. It's like once in a decade, massive solar <laughs> storms invade our atmosphere, disrupting global communication. And for detective John Sullivan, you know, it's like, uh, it would allow him to talk to his father who's been dead for 30 years. It's just like that. And it's like, then it goes through, obviously, clips in the movie. They're talking over the radio and stuff. But I immediately, once I finally made it through the whole thing, just uh, talked to my mom and was like, we got to go see this movie next weekend when it comes out. And so we went and saw and and loved the movie. So I watched it actually uh, with my mom and sister, and they enjoyed it as well. That's awesome. So my first experience, I don't really have any specific memories of it, which seems to sort of be a trend with me so far. But I'm pretty sure the first time I watched it was with my family. See, my grandfather is actually a retired firefighter. Oh. So firefighter movies were popular around the house, such as like Backdraft by Ron Howard and stuff like that. So I remember watching it for that reason. And then, of course, the time travel aspect has always been something that I've been fond of. So while I don't really remember the first experience, aside from I'm pretty sure that I watched it with my family, I remember liking it at the time. And so going into watching it this time around, I was like, okay, I know I like this movie, or at least I think I do. Let's just see what it's about, because I I didn't really remember anything, which was a really refreshing way to watch the movie. It was like it was my first time, even though it wasn't. Uh, yeah, this this movie is one that I, I go back to uh, time and time again every couple years and just rewatch it. Uh, recently, I listened to the commentary. I did a I did a watch where I saw the movie and then immediately I had like four hours to go. So I watched the movie, which is like pretty much at two hours and then rewatched with the commentary. And I'm, I'm forgetting now who is on the commentary, but uh, it's it's excellent. It's it's really good commentary. And when you approach me to come on Cinescope and say, like, 
you know, do you have a favorite movie in mind? This was like the first one that came up because it, it really kind of moves me. And it may have been also that I was just listening to episode zero of this podcast and you guys had that excellent discussion about Back to the Future. And so I was like, I need a sci-fi time travel movie for my favorite. <laughs> but no, Frequency is it. And having just watched it prior to our recording, I can tell I absolutely feel the same way about it as I did, you know, so long ago. I think that it is perhaps even an underappreciated film or I, you just don't often hear more people talking about it in the way that you might um, say, for instance, Back to the Future even. So it's really sort of a, a mission of mine as well, like to talk about this and, you know, just kind of share it with people who absolutely have already seen it and, and love it as well. So th thank you for this opportunity. I'm looking really forward to it. No problem. And with that, we can actually sort of go ahead and jump into the story of this, because I want to talk about the science fiction elements of this, specifically the time travel. I did the same thing with Back to the Future, where one of my favorite things about that is the time travel mechanics and sort of figuring out how it works as you go. Mm -hmm. And what I like about Frequency is that, yes, it's got sci-fi elements, but the sci-fi nature of it is really sort of underplayed because it doesn't involve explicit time travel. Yeah, I think at its core, it's really, I mean, there's the detective sort of thriller mystery, like murder mystery type aspect to it. But I think at its core, it's it's an emotional drama about, specifically about a father and son. Right. You know, Frank Sullivan, John Sullivan, and their interactions with the community that they live in and sort of, it's so character driven and that really counts for a lot. And then you also have like a totally unique, I guess in some ways form of time travel being utilized. There are rules that, you know, things that happen in this film that you don't necessarily see in every time travel movie out there. And it really combined, it just works really well. This movie's sort of guaranteed to tug at your heartstrings. I think the only movie I cried more at, uh, that was a time travel movie was Somewhere in Time with Christopher Reeve, uh, and Jane Seymour. But I was also like, very tired when I first saw that movie. But this one is absolutely like at its core about the father and the son. Yeah. The time travel here is sort of like an amalgam of the cause and effect time travel aspect of Back to the Future, but it also has elements of Prisoner of Azkaban where the person in the future is able to look at the past and see what has happened in order to make decisions and to influence what is about to happen. Yeah. The cool thing really about this film is that each of the characters, so you have Frank, who's a firefighter in 1969, and his son, John, who's like six in 1969, but is 36, obviously, 1999. They're both, they both remain in those set times. It's not that John Sullivan goes back and is able to prevent his father's death by physically being in 1969. They're at these fixed points in time, and then because they're able to communicate with each other, they then influence and work events this way. And honestly, like part in terms of parts of the story that stand out for like watching the movie, rewatching just last night, I realized like the first 45 to 50 minutes of the movie are all one story. It's just, it's about John reconnecting with his dad uh, who died, you know, with within two days of him, you know, when it turns out he starts speaking to him again, is able to prevent his death. And then, like the sort of elation that comes from being able to actually catch up with your father whose death had such a profound impact. The first 50 minutes are just about that. There's, there's very little about the murder that that's coming up. Uh, you know, it's, it's in there because of obviously like continuity, but it's, it's strictly about this guy, this John getting his father back. And it's so emotionally and like self-contained and like, 
I just love how the movie really devotes itself to creating the character of, of Frank, uh, how, how you, you really figure out what kind of guy Dennis is playing. And, you know, it's, it's so emotional and impactful. And they actually, you ride, they can ride that wave then through the subsequent act of the film, you know, which involves playing a lot more with time travel and the mechanics of it. Yeah, it's the father-son aspect of this movie that really is the most effective and what tugged at my heartstrings the most as well. And Dennis Quaid and Jim Caviezel have such a great rapport between each other, even though they don't really share any screen time together yeah. <laughs> as far as being in the same room. But the, the the conversation flows so well, and I think it just really sort of plays up that father-son connection that even though they didn't really have much of a relationship because he was only they were only together for six years, now that they're reconnecting, they're able to do that so quickly because it's so natural. Yeah, um, I was going to say, if you think about it, yeah, they were not on screen together for all of the most emotional, well, second most emotional scenes in the film. You know, they're, they're both sort of talking into a radio. But, you know, then again, it is kind of, if you look at the way the movie plays it, Frank has his young son, John, and, you know, there there are certain moments where, for instance, sort of after the initial reveal when when John is able to tell his dad, you know, you die in a fire tomorrow, and if you'd just gone the other way. Frank is, like, obviously disturbed. He thinks it's sort of a prank, but that night he goes up and, and just looks, It stands in the doorstep of his son's room and, and looks at his son in a way that he's probably never looked at him before. Like, what if it's true? What if tomorrow is the day that I die and I leave you right here? Like, this is the last time I'm seeing you or you're seeing me, more importantly. And just like that profoundness that he's able to play off his emotion. It's not spoken, but you can just tell by Dennis Quaid's acting, you know, looking at his son, having his young son there, that he, the kid means an awful lot to him. And his life means an awful lot to him. I think the stakes, you know, are, are, are played really high for that reason. And, and similarly in the future, John has Satch, who's, you know, his dad's old buddy and, and is a detective and, and has known him his entire life. And you, you, he can play off a lot of his emotions for Satch. And so each of these characters, they don't interact with each other, but they have a character they interact with that connects to each other in the events. And it really, I think, really works. This film is so grounded in that way. Yeah, and I love the way they set up things earlier in the film that the setups and payoffs here aren't back to the future level. No. Uh, which is the comparison that just has to be made all the time. But uh, <laughs> we see things early in the movie when they find the skeleton for the first time. We're introduced to Jack Shepard's parents. Who yeah. Introduced Jack as this person who died. And it's like, there's no connection beyond that. We just, it's a name that's thrown out. It doesn't really mean anything to us. But then that just makes that reveal later in the film so much more powerful. It's like, oh, snap. That's that guy from earlier in the movie. Right. It's just a scene where John is going to work. You know, we get to see what he does. It's as essential to the movie as it would be if that weren't the killer. You know, I think because you, you got to see John as a detective. And there's that really recurring thread between firemen and, and cops and, and how sort of the, that family dynamic plays off because, you know, Frank would wish that John would become a firefighter like he was and his dad, but he becomes a cop. And there's this sort of interplay between how that works throughout the film. I mean, eventually Frank has to become more of a cop. So it's kind of, it's just very interesting how that works and, and getting to see you know, John's life and how, I guess John at the beginning of the film, it's more muted. He's a mess. He doesn't really have his life together. And sort of getting this second chance is really a turning point. 
um for i think for both characters obviously um but I, for john as well it, it's really you can't understate how important it is to him to drive through this plot and and really make it make everything right again also going on to other story aspects, the, the way things are revealed over time mm-hmm. is very, very masterful, Not, aside from setups and payoffs. I'm like, so the first time they try and interfere in the nurses getting killed, mm-hmm. uh, we see the killer in the bar. We see Jack in the bar. It's pretty clear that this guy is kind of shady because <laughs> we see him again the next time they try to interfere, but we still don't know who this guy is. Mm-hmm. And so the way that that anticipation is built. We know who the bad guy is. We just don't know who he is. And so that makes that reveal really exciting and suspenseful. And then the other one I have written down is the slow reveal of Frank when they're first talking on the radio. Uh, Well, the second time, I suppose. So they talk the first time they establish John's life's a mess. It's yada, yada. And then the second conversation, uh, we still haven't seen Frank's face as he's talking to his son. We just see the the waving cigarette and the hand gestures and talking about baseball. And then it's slowly revealed as young John walks into the room. Oh, snap. This is Frank. This is his dad. And we're talking in the past. And Yeah, he calls him Little Chief. Yeah, he calls him Little Chief. And so it was sort of hinted at before. I mean, you could have guessed that we were talking to Frank, but the way it's revealed slowly and the way Little John walks in, Little Chief walks in, and all of a sudden that realization is made by both John and the audience at the same time is very, very well done, I think. Yeah, they share the same, the radio, the the call sign is the same. That That was very cool. I also love, for a time travel film, I love all of the, if you if you look at it, each of the times when time has been altered is sort of revealed a little differently. Um, because once the movie sets up, uh, to what you, what you were just saying about once it sets up that there is, you know, two time frames, there's 1969 and 1999, you begin to get this ripple effect, sometimes presented in, in dream sequences as the future John is able to re-remember what has just like sort of the events leading up to present day 1999 based on what changed in 1969 but physically there's a lot of actual things being changed like the desk being burned so when frank you know accidentally his i guess it's hot glue gets caught on fire and he has to stub it out and john in the future is like oh you you burned the desk really really cool how there's this sort of synchronicity there's this sort of as events are happening in 69 john in 1999 is immediately like 1999 is being immediately impacted. That's what's so cool about these two time frames happening concurrently. Like they're at the same date, mm-hmm. both October 10th, October 12th, whatever it is, just 30 years apart. And so actions that are taking place in the 60s are immediately happening in the 90s as a result, which, like you said, that's very, very cool. And it also addresses something that I wish that Back to the Future had sometimes addressed was, you know, when things happen in the past, the person in the future should remember them automatically, you know? I think Back to the Future, so far as I'm aware, never has really an opportunity to show that because the people who should be remembering are the ones who are time traveling. So there's a line from Doc in part two, right, where it's the alternate 1985, and he says, oh, don't worry, the universe will change around Jennifer and Ivy. So, so like, we can just leave them in the past. I know that's also a story issue they were working out, but essentially the reality does shift. The only difference is Doc and Marty know the difference. So for everyone else, you know, they're able to, they they don't know any different. So I think it's basically the same thing, but you don't have that aspect playing 
a part in Back to the Future because nobody's sort of in the future when somebody else changes it. Or were you actually, you know what, when Biff goes back in part two and changes things and creates the tangent, I think it's a different way of looking at time, though, because what should have happened, in fact, it is different because that sort of creates another timeline, whereas this timeline is fixed, and it's it's as if to say there's only one timeline, so when you change it in 69, it updates 99. The only reason John Sullivan remembers both is because he is one of the two agents involved in the transfer of events and information. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does make sense. So I wrote down uh, some of the, the cool time changes. I wanted to get back to this um, because it's it's really awesome. Uh, and again, it's, at points it's very subtle. But the, the first time that something happens in the past and you see it in the future is the glass pane on sort of the, the, the den door. Essentially, Frank is having that conversation, you know, and it degrades and John says, you're going to die or whatever. He's kind of mesmerized by the conversation, gets up, isn't really paying attention to what he's doing, and then, you know, knocks into the door and breaks the pain. Well, in 1999, John doesn't really notice this, but he then gets up to go to bed and walks past the window that's now fractured. We don't, we don't see it be fractured, but it's just, it's, it's fractured immediately, which is really how the movie kind of sells visually that it's the same house and it's 30 years later and that these two timelines are linked. But then the movie gets like ultimately more bold, uh, showing the burns in the desk, both uh, the accidental one and the I'm still here chief, which is such a cool effect watching it, you know, happen, as you say, concurrently. Then again, though, it's different in the detective's office. When Frank is back in the past saving that first girl, you know, basically just Jack Shepard backs off because Frank is there and the ladies have bought him a drink. He, remember, he, like, takes a call and Satch is there. He, he takes the call. He looks back and says, well, where is this girl? And Satch is like, who? Because he's never heard of her. You know, the the file that, that John was looking at a second ago as the camera panned right the the file's no longer there so we actually saw we didn't realize it because there's no like cgi ripple happening but immediately like just cold cut there's there's no file there and it's as if nothing ever happened but time has just changed yet again there are now you know that girl has no longer died really cool stuff and then the culmination of course being jack shepard's hand and what happens to it in the past which affects the future and his hand is sort of erased from existence right in front of him it's kind of a bit like back to the future actually again right you use the exact line yeah <laughs> uh i just wrote down a couple of my favorite scenes that aren't necessarily about the time travel but as far as favorite scenes go i really love the scene where john and frank are talking and then all of a sudden julia comes in and he says hey hey i want you to talk to this guy on the radio yeah. and so john gets to talk to his mother who he actually just recently lost in present day because of the way they affected the timeline mm -hmm. um so that's really emotional because he doesn't have his mother anymore and in fact even before he lost her to death um at the start of the movie that scene where he's visiting his mother is kind of strained because you get the sense that they haven't talked in a while because it feels very much like a catch-up conversation. Yeah. So it's like he's getting this chance to talk to his mother and to get a chance to tell her, you know, I, I love you. Even though he can't really say that directly, he implies it very well and gets some resolution there. And then, of course, he gets to say hi to himself, which is a little strange, but they don't linger <laughs> on it. <laughs> and um, then he gets to talk to his friend Gordo, who 
at the beginning of the film, another one of these moments of setups and payoff, Gordo, adult Gordo, mentions at the beginning of the film something about Yahoo and how the points had climbed a little bit higher in the stock exchange. And so in a moment of kindness, he thinks, okay, Gordo mentioned Yahoo. I'll plant that seed now so he can have a better life for himself and his family in the future, <laughs> which is very generous. And it's it's a funny little moment. That's just a really fun scene that I, I enjoyed. And um, the other one I have mentioned down for, for this section, at least, is when Satch is watching the baseball game towards the end of the film. And it really starts when they arrest Frank at the house um, because it, it's really Satch's moment to shine, this like 10 to 20 minute window. Uh, where he experiences all these this this huge range of emotions from disbelief to anger to incredulity to amusement and almost relief as he realizes, wow, Frank's not crazy. This baseball game that he predicted is happening right before my eyes. And uh, it's, a, it's a funny moment as he, he just stepped away from Julia, who's really worried about her husband and the situation he's in. <laughs> to he steps aside baseball. to go watch the baseball game. <laughs> yeah, if this isn't a if, if if people would get angry if we started calling this a baseball movie, you know, like it's it's absolutely baseball tangential. Oh, for sure. If if not a baseball movie, because baseball plays such a huge. This is the 1969 World Series. The Amazons are, are playing. You know, everybody, these lives, these characters' lives revolve around this series, and and that's the timeline and the setting is all around baseball. Of course, the the payoff scene at the at the end of the film as well involves baseball. They love it, and it's so. It really drives home the heart of the film, you know, baseball being America's pastime. It's just, it's a community sport. It's a community that have each other and are relying on each other. And there's a lot of that in this film as well, especially with the very beginning and the firefighters. Uh, if I can mention some of my uh, favorite scenes as well that I wrote down. Yeah. The, the opening is fantastic. It's, it's sort of, I don't want to say over the top action, but it's, it's the most, it's certainly the most action between this and the Buxton fire, which happens again within the first 45 minutes. These, these huge sort of set pieces, this, um, you know, overturned truck, which is, uh, basically a, a spark that's about to ignite and sort of the introduction to Frank, Daredevil, Frank Sullivan, who's going in to save these poor city men, you know, from the fire. It's just such a, a great intro scene, and there's a little bit of, like, standard, sort of more cliche. I wrote this line down. He's he's about to go in and rescue the men, and it's like, forget it, Sullivan. Vault door's rusted shut, and they can't kill the juice. You know? But he's like, I'm going in. Gonna do this. <laughs> and it's such a good intro to the character, but, like, he so very nearly it gets exploded. Uh, he sees sort of the wall of flame coming toward him, and, and the movie very like poignantly kind of hints at what this film is going to be about i mean frank is is staring down death in that moment and the the i really saw it as a metaphor the flames that are reaching out for him he barely gets up the ladder and out onto the street the flames still rise after him it's essentially a metaphor for fate itself like for death coming for you right which which i i just i just love and i remember in the listening to the the commentary Whoever it is that's running it, I think it's the director, is talking about how those actors who played the the firemen were a real district of firemen and how their influence on the film can be felt in the finished product because of that that community, that sense of these men, you know, saving lives together. 
so a lot of those men are actual firefighters that you that you see in the film and you know they they're they're really credited with adding an extra layer of texture and and really heart to the film uh that already has a lot of heart definitely and then because me i'm a big sap uh as well i i just love when <laughs> frank and john are able to catch up with each other after he comes back and writes i'm still here chief they're able to kind of go into a montage this is when the film lets up from the first 45 minutes that it's just been this harrowing tale of will he or won't he survive you know they're, they're able to really really talk there's it's kind of it's kind of played lightly there's um john tells his dad about cell phones <laughs> uh he obviously informs him a lot of like the next uh, probably decades of baseball but there's there's some more touching moments for instance he tells him uh what it was like meeting his mother he says she melted my heart to his son you know you can tell that you know exactly who he's talking to and it's it's about his mom and so all these moments that john sullivan never got to have with his father they're now having and it's amazing how quickly you buy it that these two you know adult males are talking to each other and it's it's this father and son bond even though they're both probably about the same age uh-huh it's it's just you know and that culminates of course in i love you son i love you too dad god that line it was in the trailer <laughs> and i'm just like just bawling thinking about it but you know he says i've missed you so much he's he he cautions him about smoking because once they fix the first timeline it's revealed that frank eventually dies from lung cancer like this opportunity that's the central crux of the film is just it's never played in in sort of a goofy way it's never played for laughs either it's it's really a, a dramatic film yeah. at its core which is what differs from or how it differs from back to the future um you know a lot of this stuff that's in here is is very weighted towards, you know, th this sort of emotional catharsis. Yeah, and we can use both of those scenes to jump into the character section because I was going to mention both of those scenes in uh, my character notes. So in the opening scene, like what you were talking about, you're right, it does a great job of introducing Frank as a character because we're, we learn that he's sort of a daredevil, he loves adrenaline, he, he's a firefighter, he rides a motorcycle, <laughs> but aside from putting himself at risk, the reason he puts himself at risk is because he cares so much about other people. And he also has this extreme love for family. That scene after the opener, after the fire, uh, where he comes home and oh. he dances with his wife and sings Elvis Presley's oh. Suspicious Minds. And then John walks in and he sees how much his parents love each other. That's that's He's six years old and he can see how much his parents love each other. Even Gordo can so see cool. it. Even yeah, Gordo's yeah. like, oh man, you're your parents really love each other. Like it's, I, 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 that's probably my favorite, like three seconds of the movie is when the, 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 the two boys are just watching as uh, Dennis Quaid and Elizabeth Mitchell are dancing. Cause it, 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 it has a very nostalgic feel to it as well. And, you know, to a lesser extent, there is some nostalgia factor, you know, I'm sure baseball fans uh, probably really enjoy the heavy use of real life outcomes of baseball games oh, for to sure. construct the, the narrative of the film. But just in the very beginning, too, when we're in technically in space going into, you know, kind of going into Earth, the music that's playing, you know, you got Suzy Q, you got uh, Crimson and Clover and great, great 60s music, uh, Heat Wave, which is what's playing before they change to Elvis in the in the dancing scene, which is also ironic because of the fire. But, yeah. you know, it's, it's, it's so good at setting the, or at least they work to, you know, set, set the time. And there's something inherently nostalgic, I think, about childhood. We all have these memories of 
you know, seeing uh, these things as children, or at least I would hope that we would, you know, have seen our, our parents and happy. And so, yeah, that's, that's, that's great. And then Frank, you know, he, he's, he's also teaching his kid how to ride a bike. And Julie is able to, or Julia, sorry, the mom, Julie is able to really give Frank some advice. They're a team, you know, she says, your son has to know you're with him. And, and she tells him to kind of basically what he ends up doing, which is, you know, kind of hold on a little bit longer than he normally would have to, to teach his son how to ride a bike. And it's this really cohesive family unit, which is really just the film setting up the stakes uh, as well. You know, you mentioned John getting to talk to his mom. That's at a moment and a period of time where they're about to go try and stop her murder. Right. Um, it really reminds the audience of the stakes and why it's important. And these characters work really well together and they deserve each other. And if you, you know, you've been given this opportunity through the Northern Lights or there's string theories mentioned on a TV, uh, at some point and like you're, they're given this opportunity to affect the past and the, the characters, you just want them to have each other for as long as possible. Yeah. So on sort of the the flip side of Frank is John at the start of the movie. He he keeps his father's love for helping other people in his form as a police detective, but in all other aspects, he his his family life's a mess. His girlfriend's leaving him at the start of the film. Yeah. He's distanced from his mother. He's lost his love for baseball. So <laughs> on every other term except for the public service front. He's very different from who his dad is, and it's just because he didn't have that figure in his life longer than for six years. So that that's really difficult to watch, and because he's still at the heart of it, just a little boy missing his dad. Right before his girlfriend walks out the door, she calls him chief, and that sort oh, of kick starts because that's two days before the anniversary of his father's death. Uh, so it hits yeah. hard. But as the film progresses, and as they're able to talk to each other, and form a relationship that they didn't really ever get to have, they are able to affect change in each other. You mentioned the catch-up scene where they're just, it's sort of like a montage, like you said, where they're getting to talk through John's life and what he missed out on all this time and what he's going to get to look forward to now that he didn't die. And Mm. that's very, very cool because Frank is able to give his son advice as if he had been there all along. And John's able to take that advice to heart because, hey, I have my dad back. And when it culminates in that I love you, which almost seems it, it, it has a big weight to it, just the way Dennis Quaid sort of hesitates before he says that line. It, it's almost I almost got the sense where he doesn't say it very much. You know, a lot of those old timey fathers didn't say I love you mm-hmm. a lot just because they were the tough guys. But I think he, in that moment, he realizes, wow, this is my son who hasn't known me for 30 years this is a big moment. And so he says, I love you. And John sort of struggles and he laughs a second. And then it, as, as a tear rolls down his face, he says, I love you too, dad. And I said, he says, I've missed you so much. And man, that <laughs> it just gets to me. And you mentioned the bike scene as well. That scene, the second bike scene specifically where uh, John is now successful as a kid riding his bike really hits me because I actually have a very strong memory and even a picture of the moment when my dad taught me how to ride my bike. Oh God. So I I texted Eric, everybody. Uh, I texted you after I watched the movie Sunday night and I said, Eric, I was not emotionally prepared for this movie. And it is, (laughs) (laughs) it is just because this movie hits so hard in the father, father, son arena. And those kind of stories, father, son, brothers, sisters, familial relationships really get to me. And um, this movie does it so well, especially between Frank and 
John. They just have such good scenes together. And the ultimate ending scene where he says, I'm still here, chief. Um, oh, after, after rescuing his son, this moment that he's waited 30 years for since he almost lost his family to the same guy, you know, it's just a really cool moment. And it's really touching to finally have the, these two characters in the same room together, able to talk to each other, to touch each other and to really express their love for each other in the flesh. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. John and Frank's, uh, relationship, I, I, can't really off the top of my head think of a better one uh, between father and son, the opportunities that they're about to have. I think a lot of what, what drives that too is, um, you know, when they're talking and affecting the future, you know, they don't know necessarily when their connection is going to be lost forever. And that's actually, that's played for, that's sort of the initial suspense before the, the, the murder subplot or murder storyline, because, you know, these Northern lights or however you want to say they're, they're being able to talk to each other. You just kind of don't know why it's happening or what the rules are. It's not guaranteed. It's not as if you've built this time machine and you can very easily tell it where to go to and you, you can, you can control to that degree. This radio and we see it, it does at one point get busted. Uh, and it does sort of, it has this sort of wonky technology aspect to it where you're like, oh, it's not well made, it's going to fail, and they're going to be cut off and sort of stranded from away from each other, and it turns out that happens with a murderer loose. They're, they sort of make the most out of, out of their time together, and that's really what I think is probably one of the messages of the, of the story as well. But like, yeah, the, their conversations are played very seriously as being, you know, maybe this is the last time we talk. So it's, it's kind of, it's so interesting, their relationship. Uh, but there's also lots of other really good characters in this film. Oh, for sure. It's, it's centered around Frank and John, but uh, the other characters are no small people. No, um, I, I really love the mom, honestly. I really love Elizabeth Mitchell as Julia Sullivan. She is smart. She is spunky. She has a real good arc, I think, through this film. She's obviously show, she's being shown as a great mother to John, She's a great wife to Frank. She really kind of levels him out at one point. Uh, her line uh, about him is, he was just a big kid. He wanted to play baseball forever. Uh, she really brings sort of uh, responsibility to Frank as a dad and grounds him. Whilst, you know, as, as we see, she has a kind heart, is a nurse, saves lives, even the life of the murderer. Uh, right. You know, she saves inadvertently by just being who she is. You know, that, that caregiver, that provider, that person who is, is going to stop at nothing to protect and, and care. And even in the future when, you know, John and her's relationship is, is strained, she can kind of see through his BS and she realizes that when he says Samantha's, you know, busy with exams, it means they actually broke up again, you know, and, and she's not with him because he, he screwed it up and she's gentle. She's exactly gentle enough. And yet she defends herself. She's not helpless. I'm thinking about when Jack at the end of the movie shows up and is assaulting her in bed and she gives him a nice scratch across the face, which is again, oh, I forgot. That's one of the, the time shift things that shows up as well. A nice scar across his face. But like she's, she's very apt at, at protecting hers and, and also saving lives. So I absolutely love Julia. Yeah, and there's that moment in that same scene with Jack attacking when he's got John 
little John in his hands and he's trying to escape while Frank has the gun pointed at him. And uh, in a moment of distraction, she jumps on this guy who just assaulted her in the bed. And uh, you're right. She's a fighter. She, she comes she's there him. to help each other. She's protective. She, she just like Frank and just like John, they put others needs before their own in a lot of ways. That's a good point. That's a great connection between the two of them too. And any connection between her and her and Frank. And like, you're absolutely right about her jumping in, in, in the way she, she creates the distraction. I, I wrote, wrote this down because you're right. She creates that diversion, which allows her kid to survive and, you know, allows Frank to grab the gun again. It's absolutely her ballsiness and her courage there that, that causes that to happen and eventually saves the day. So mad props to her. Definitely. And then other characters to mention, we, we talked about Satch just a little bit, yeah. who has his moments and he's, he's a fun character. He's not necessarily a focus, but he's a really grounded father figure character for uh, John in the future. Um, by Andre Brower. Yes. And then, of course, you've got Jack Shepard, who's just like the sleaziest sleazeball <laughs> out there. I mean, the, the moment you first see him in that scene at the bar, uh, you know he's the bad guy, even though you don't know who he is. So uh, he 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 makes a great villain, but I never felt that he was cliched. Like he he wasn't the guy twiddling his mustache, rubbing his hands together, evil scheming. It was just this sort of sense about him that maybe not everything was right. Yeah, and he played that very well. Yeah, he he absolutely did. Um, I'm thinking it's it's relatively late in 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 the film, uh, but John shows up uh, once he's found out who he is through the wallet trick, which is amazing. Uh, probably, probably my favorite thing in the movie about time travel that utilizes that. But he basically, John shows up and baits him, and they've they've never met before. But one cop to another, they sit down and start to have the conversation. And John starts showing him pictures and says, "We just found this, you know, skeleton. Turns out she's the first Betty Newer." And they have this such a tense. You never know exactly what Jack is thinking or going to do. You know, caged animals, man, they they lash out. But this guy, you still don't know. This guy who's a cop for crying out loud and has, you know, is familiar enough with the way these things work and is familiar with the shakedown. And you really see him using those skills to get into the interrogation room in 1969 where Frank is as well. He's so suave and he's able to talk to the other cops as if he's one of them, but he's not. Definitely excellent acting and, uh, yeah, when John says to him, you went down 30 years ago, pal, you just don't know it yet. And he right, just, that's so they good. leer at each other. They just leer at each other. <laughs> and it's like, you get a villain who's not under any circumstances over the top, but you really, really feel the danger. And when he when he's about to kill Frank in the past, when he takes his wallet uh, and his driver's license and is about to strangle him, but then the two guys come in, he's endlessly adaptable. And it's it makes for a, a really terrifying villain. I think, which this film is blessed with a lot of things. And Jack Shepard, the character of Jack Shepard is, is just another one of them. Yeah. So let's go ahead and move on. Unless, are there any other characters you want to mention? Just Sachin Gordo, really. Um, Gordo, played by Noah Emmerich, is, uh, a very good character. I like this character. He's, he's really the redemptive. He redeems John's future character because he's the loyal friend who's stayed with him since childhood. Um, you know, he really, through thick and thin, Gordo has been there for John Sullivan. And it's actually Gordo who sets in, in line the events of the film because he comes over with his kid and they, of course, uncover 
well, a shotgun, and then and then also the ham radio, which you know Gordo's line is, uh, "Let's throw it in the den, huh? Plug it in," <laughs> and and that's what they do. So Gordo serves a very important story function in addition to being sort of the lighter, you know, sort of comic relief, as you mentioned with Yahoo uh, and sort of John's. John's Back to the Future Part Two moment, <laughs> where he tells he tells Gordo where to. This movie is really Back to the Future Parts One and Two, if you want to make that <laughs> argument. But yeah, the, the so the character of Gordo just I really 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 enjoy for for that reason. And and Satch, you already hit the nail on the head with you know he's a, he's a good father figure for John when John does not have that father figure. And Satch probably you know raised John as his own. There's a line where Frank tells him. Uh, Satch has loved you ever since you were born. You know, he's always had an eye on you, always watched over you. And it's, you, you really feel that. And John and, uh, Satch, John's able to sort of disrespect him a little bit. And Satch scolds him at one point. He's like, you know, I won't have this disrespect because he's also, you know, his boss or his, his pre, uh, presiding officer or something like that. And, you know, the relationships are all three dimensional in this film. There's no 2D character interaction. And, and so the characters are very well accomplished. So let's go ahead and move on to the music. So I mentioned earlier, there's there wasn't an official soundtrack release, so we don't have like track titles that we can look at now and specifically refer to. But there are really two specific moments in the movie that I wanted to draw attention to the music to personally. So you already mentioned the very opening scene, which I think it introduces a sort of film's, I don't know if I want to call it the theme, but it definitely sets the pace for the action at the very beginning and sets the tone for the start and it really gives you this idea that you know firefighting is a dangerous job Mm. so it's a great opener to the movie as far as music goes and just really accompanies that scene very very well and then i think the best musical moment is in the scene immediately following their second conversation on the ham radio where it's revealed that it's the father and the son and in this action scene where he's potentially facing the end of his life or should have faced the end of his life had John not interfered, where he's contemplating the truth of this being his son that he was talking to on the radio. And instead of this action music that similar to what we got at the beginning of the film in a similar scene, we get this dramatic, like sweeping orchestral melody where it's really playing up the drama of the moment rather than the action of the moment, which I think was a really, really smart choice and not something that every director or composer would have gone with. But it works in the moment because we see the thought process behind Frank's eyes. You know, is this something I should believe? Is this something that's real? And of course, then he sees the baseball game prediction come true. And well, so the firehouse. it's getting credulity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's there's also uh, a sort of more muted version of the theme. It plays uh, the night before the fire. And it's sort of like, it's basically like a music box uh, that's playing. And it, it really, to me, uh, screams of possibility. And it gets to the sort of the heart of what it is that they're trying to accomplish. Could we change the past? Could we affect the future? Could we make a better life for ourselves? And this this theme, it's just a couple of notes going back and forth and different variations and stuff and progression. But the the music is completely stellar. And I think it goes one step further at, at sucking you into these characters by because it's allowed to be bold when it needs to be but it's it's also allowed to be quiet yeah and that's always a mark of a great composer um i'm not overly familiar with all of michael kamen's work specifically aside from just seeing them listed out but what i have heard he has strong themes such as in the original x-men movie and in band of brothers is it um 
I think it's called Mutant School. It's when Xavier's first uh, guiding Wolverine around, and you start and you see the students in action for the first time. You see like Cyclops and Jean Grey, and that orchestral piece I just remember was one of the first and only songs I ever bootlegged from Napster when Napster first came out <laughs> because it was so moving to me and it just makes you feel like you could, what if you too could be in the X-Men world? You know, it's just, it's so uh, evocative of of your your emotion, tugs at the heartstrings. Yeah, and so Kamen, I think, I normally associate him with strong thematic material and really memorable themes. And we don't really get so much of that here, but what he does present is so appropriate for the scenes at hand. And it really fits the mood of the film well, I think. And uh, that specific moment with the Buxton fire and the the really gorgeous sweeping melody is definitely a play to his strengths and tells a story in a way beyond just the picture. And then there's also the music that, that isn't from Michael Kamen, but the contemporary music. Uh, exactly. I mentioned before, and that not only works to set the scene, but then also you have um, Take Me Out to the Ball Game, which the dad sings it to the son, and there's a version that plays um, during the, the sort of family baseball as they all watch Game 2 together. Uh-huh. And it just it really is such a great use of all the music to, to continue building the world and setting the scene, in addition to the orchestral stuff that Michael came and turns in. Yeah, and then I'm not a huge country music fan, but then we get a Garth Brooks song <laughs> over the, the final baseball montage, and we're getting this this scene of everybody together and alive in 1999, and they're playing baseball together and having a blast together, and then we get a montage of the memories that John now has because both of his parents survived, and it's really emotional, and I, I wrote down one specific line because this, this song was written for the movie. And one specific line is, when you come back to me again and again, I see my yesterdays in front of me, unfolding the mystery. You're changing all that is and used to be. Wow. It's, there's, there's some great lyric writing in there. And that was one of my favorite lines. So if you get the chance to look at the lyrics for the song, which is called When You Come Back to Me Again by Garth Brooks, you definitely should because it, it fits the movie really well. And yes, it's country music, but it's not over the top twangy. What? I guess I, I, I don't have the same hang-ups in country music that other people do, I guess. But this movie, that just boggles my mind, really, that th this movie, not only does it work so well, but you have things that not every other movie has, like a song written for it, you know, or that's at least exclusive to it in terms of this was this song, you know, was eyed for this film. I just I can't think of too many movies where that's happened. And yet I sort of stand by what I said earlier, like this movie... I, I don't really ever see it being referenced on any, you know, best of lists or, you know, even top 10 lists of time travel films that you must check out. This movie has somehow, I fear that it's maybe fallen through some cracks or something, but it absolutely, there's no reason for that to have happened. And, and more people need to kind of watch and experience this for themselves. That being said, let's move on to the the sort of relevance, the takeaways from this movie. Yeah. So what what would you say is the biggest takeaway or one of the biggest takeaways? I, I mentioned this before, but uh, with the uncertainty that they have for whether or not the, the radio is going to last, they sort of have a contingency plan at one point where it's like, okay, if we can't save all these, you know, seven more girls from dying, just take mom and get out of there because they just don't know. I think the point is, you are supposed to spend as much time as you can, make the most out of your time with your loved ones and tell them that you love them. You know, Frank, 
is never really guilted for going off and dying. We know that it's in the pursuit of saving a life that he goes into the warehouse to begin with. But he ultimately, it's not necessarily that that was a cavalier action, but Frank, up until the point where he goes the other way and survives, is never really self-reflective enough to look at the impact that his being there will have on his kid, will have on his family, will have on his loved ones. And it's sort of, you know, in moments in the future where they they toast to him, having, you know, having died and being the anniversary of his death, and they, they, they talk about his dad to John, and everyone, you know, really seems to have loved him, but he's not there. It just kind of, I think, is a, a feel-good story that really reminds you, though, to to spend time with the ones you love and, uh, you know, let them know you love them. Yeah, I wrote down something similar. I said it plays up the idea of living your life with the people you love in mind, um, which doesn't necessarily mean eliminating risk or adventure, but being careful so you can stay with the people you love. Frank grows more careful as a firefighter after he realizes he, if he had turned the other way, he would have died and he would have left his family completely alone. So the idea that our lives are our own, yes, and we should live them appropriately, but our lives also belong to the people we love and who love us. Uh, absolutely. And it, the movie also, what I take away is that um, if I ever the chance to see the Aurora Borealis, I absolutely have to. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> it's really interested me. I mean, it's sort of like a a planet's aligning phenomenon. You know, the, the sun is is shooting out flares and the radio waves act all funny and kind of bounce off. And even in the beginning of the film, before time travel happens, uh, there's a brief voiceover where Frank is talking about being able to reach so much further than he, you know, used to be able to on certain days as a result of the phenomenon. So I, I definitely want to check out the Northern Lights if and when I, I ever can, because they're they're used lightly in this film to sort of explain what's going on. But I just, I love all that sciencey stuff that is a natural phenomenon according, you know, on, on Earth. And it occurs on Earth from, you know, from time to time and it can be explained by science. I just, it made me actually just more interested in knowing about radios and how they work and that, that sort of thing. So I definitely want to check that older technology out. I also wrote down that this movie really stresses the importance of family in our lives. Mm. John's life becomes infinitely better when he lives a life that had both of his parents in it. And that's not to say that people who are missing one or both of their parents can't live fulfilling lives. It just means that our parents' lives enrich our own most of the time. Mm -hmm. And so much of our parents make us who we are. So you see elements of his father in him, you see elements of his mother in him, and all of them really complement each other. And John's life is better for it. And so in that final scene where his house adjusts around him and it becomes a little bit less worn or decrepit and more well furnished. <laughs> that's the that's the fight club sequence, the one where it's like the, the room rotates and all the furniture changes. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I think it does a really good job of stressing the importance of family in our lives. Those of us who are fortunate enough to have family. Yeah, for sure. Definitely want to call my parents and tell them that I love them after watching this movie. And then the last thing I have written down as far as takeaways are... These all sort of go hand in hand, but this one specifically, it's about putting the needs of others before yourself. So you look at this family. Julie is a nurse, Frank's a fireman, and John is a police officer. They're all in public service. They're all about helping other people and saving people's lives. And they're all good characters. They're all good people. Even though they have their own problems, 
that they struggle with, they sort of set those problems aside in favor of helping other people with their problems. And even though that's not maybe something that's preached in this movie or something that they're trying to teach us a lesson about, the fact that these characters exist and they're such strong characters really lends credence to the idea of being there for other people and doing what it takes to help, even if it's not the most convenient thing for you. Oh, yeah. And and the tertiary characters, the secondary and tertiary characters are also in the service industry, are also in public service, are all our other firemen, are Gordo, his best friend who's been with him since he was, you know, since they were children. Um, you have sort of all really good people. You know, if it takes a village, we get to see that village uh, that, that raises John and we get to see how these people interact. You know, they're, they're neighbors. They live in presumably the same you know, town, the same district of Queens. And, you know, they, they interact, they play baseball together. They, you know, this film, I think in terms of relevance really, you know, kind of speaks out to knowing your neighbor and reaching out. I mean, ultimately what are, what are Frank and Julia and John doing this for, if not their community, they're they're not doing it for themselves. And so this sense of community, which is sort of in the background of the film, it's never, uh, over, over your head or, or over the top is really, I think, probably a, a lesson that the film is, in fact, trying to get at. Definitely. And do you have any other takeaways for this movie, Eric? I, I'm honestly just kind of still trying to count all of the um, connections between Back to the Future. Uh, <laughs> we, we we mentioned a bunch of them, but like in terms of takeaways, I have I think three more. Okay. The reference to Florence Nightingale is a big one. The nurse killings, of course, are dubbed the Nightingale Murders. We first hear that that's happening uh, on the radio in the very beginning of the film opening scene. And, of course, it plays into when, you know, John's own mother ends up being one of those women. In Back to the Future, Doc mentions it uh, as Marty's mom. It's like that's the Florence Nightingale effect. It happens in, uh, when patients fall in love with their nurses. So that gets a shout out. The 30-year time difference as well, how it's exactly 30 years. Of course. 85 and 55 in Back to the Future and 99 and 69. And also the makeup. Um, you actually get to see these younger actors with old makeup on. It happens with Satch, probably most successfully. But also Julia's character, Elizabeth Mitchell. And in the end, spoiler alert, Dennis Quaid. You know, we see them as much older people. And I think it works. It works better than Death of the Part 2 did. Um, in terms of aging, <laughs> aging these characters up, it really reminds me of the Back to the Future effects. Like just the way the skin is a little tighter, a couple more bags, but that's it. Yeah, it's not over excessive, and it, it's all the better for it. So it just kind of amazes me how different, you know, these. If you were to if you were to pull me like my favorite movies of all time, and I lit, you know created a list, a startling proportion of them would be science fiction, and maybe even more than a few would also be time travel. But yet. All of these movies, you know, these films manage to be significantly, like, uniquely different from each other. This movie is not Back to the Future, and there it manages to carve out its own niche in in this, you know, vast category of sci-fi. This this film actually feels closer to Contact uh, for me than Back to the Future because it's it's you know primarily character-driven emotion, inner thought type stuff. But uh, it's just amazing how unique and different this movie is, I think, from all the others that have come before it and come after. And I really just appreciate the movie for its uniqueness. So do you have any other final thoughts aside from that? or uh, Final thoughts? Yeah, uh, we didn't talk about the confrontation that Frank has with Jack. 
where he goes to his apartment, right? It's after the interrogation scene when he, oh, God, brilliant Frank, by the way, right? Setting that electrical trap. Oh, yeah. Basically pulling the wires out and wiring the fuses. Like, I love it because the reason it's practical is because, of course, a firefighter would know how to start a fire. You know? Exactly. Like That's what I was about to say. He's so handy. It's like, I got to get out of this situation. He's endlessly, uh, what's the word, like? macgyver esque <laughs> yeah there's a there's a much better word for it than that it's it's you, but you just he's uh not utilitarian he, he just uses he's able to see exactly what he needs and is able to make the most out of it so so there's that but when he's in jack's apartment looking for his trophies because john has said at one point you know scenes and scenes before that this guy definitely collected trophies jewelry and this is how you catch this is how you shirk police suspicion back on to the right guy who's also a cop he goes to his place obviously jack comes home and the two you know sort of scuff it out but he's able to kind of discern from you know when jack goes to the closet and looks up he's like that's where it is and just the shootout the chase between them which goes underwater for crying out loud they chase each other to the to the docks frank dodges all the bullets it's just a really effective chase sequence in an otherwise non-action film but again the fire you know and the beginning of the film there are parts of this film that are so actiony and and they're so well handled they're so well accomplished and yet there's also the great emotional scenes that are so well accomplished and so well handled as well so really just the diversity of this film is like by scene is my is my final thought it definitely features a wide variety of genre within the genre it it doesn't try too hard to be one thing. It's a little bit of everything, sort of, again, just like Back to the Future is. Um, cool. Any other final thoughts, Eric? I don't think so. Okay, for me, um, the things I want to say about this movie, it's just a great, it features a lot of great family relationships. I already mentioned those kind of relationships really get to me, and they destroy me in a good way. <laughs> and uh, the the father-son in this relationship between Frank and John is just so well done. And Dennis Quaid and Jim Caviezel are very well cast and feature great chemistry with each other and rapport. Overall, it's just, it's a movie that has good time travel mechanics. It's It's got effective relationships as an affective relationships. And um, the engaging sort of procedural, police procedural-esque storyline is just very, very well done, I think. Now, Eric, you wanted to mention just briefly the TV show adaptation that's coming to the CW in October. Yeah, this is so this is kind of this this runs perpendicular to my insisting that this movie's underappreciated and not used. It looks like the CW found this film and in 2016 is creating a television series that is at I have to assume at least loosely based on it. The reason I say loosely, you know, there's no guarantee that the show on the CW will be quality, but they've managed to retain from the looks of things some character names, but other things are changed. So all there is now, I I haven't seen a a trailer for it, but according to the IMDb, Frequency, which will premiere uh, in October of 2016, stars basically a father and daughter, Frank Sullivan, and uh, his daughter is, I believe, Ramy. Yes. Ramy Sullivan, played by Devin Kelly. And the storyline, as listed on IMDb, says a police detective in 2016, so they did update it, discovers that she is able to speak via a ham radio, uh, plot point, with her estranged father, Frank Sullivan, a detective 
not a fireman, who died in 1996, and the two must work together to change the history of tragic events to come while also getting the chance to heal their complicated relationship. So it's it's very interesting to it's going to be very interesting to see how the dynamic is different. I mean, father son versus father daughter. Uh, for one, I'm very very interested in it's it's. I don't I don't want to say it's going to be night and day, but I think it'll be very interesting how they also seem to have worked in a lot more sort of complication uh, between the characters. It might not just be that he died when she was young. You know, it could be that there was that there's more to it than that. Obviously, as a TV series, you probably need to make things a little less simplified anyway, just to be able to write more hours of, of content for it. But ultimately, I'm just curious as to how this will all play out. And based on the other characters, you know, casting info, there's a Satch uh, played by Mecky Pfeiffer, um, you know, and, and, and Frank Sullivan is played by Riley Smith. I, I, and there's a Gordo uh, played by Jenny, Lenny Jacobson. So I'm, I'm just really curious above any, everything else because the 2016 to 1996 time change is also going to be an interesting one. I mean, can you imagine looking at the 90s nostalgically that <laughs> this the the the, orig- the original film uh was filmed in the it was in the late 90s. So it's way too soon to to go back then. But now that it's been, you know, 16 years, 17 years and they've updated the story, I just wonder how it's going to work. And I I still hope they get some 60s music to play in there somehow. <laughs> yeah, that'd be great. You know, it it makes me wonder whether they're planning the show with an end game in mind, mm. like where they want to end up and how they want to wrap up the story, or if they're it's just using the framing device. These days, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Or, but with this specifically, whether they're just going to use the framing device to create the sort of police procedural qualities of the movie, I don't know. But it is worth noting that the writer of Frequency, Toby Emmerich, is actually producing the TV show as well. I I I honestly think that that is the single most promising aspect of the TV series. I can't say anything else gives me more comfort uh, than that. You know, thinking that maybe there's there's a lot of, you know, maybe the quality will, will, will follow, the heart will follow and travel. That, that gives me good hope. Yeah, hopefully. It's always nice to have somebody from the original project in the reboot or remake to sort of keep the integrity of the original. Yeah, that's exactly it. In this, in today's reboot culture, today's and yesterday's reboot culture, I feel like it's been going on for ye- almost ten years now. But like, yeah, I, I definitely think I, I agree with everything you're saying, and and we only have to wait six weeks to find out. Yep, here's hoping. <laughs> Anything else about Frequency, Eric? Yeah, I hope the new TV show really brings uh, this movie back into the limelight, and I want to see a sequel and all sorts of other stuff. <laughs> <laughs> that would be great. Uh, Blu-ray 20th anniversary edition. I I don't, I don't know. I want to see more people talk about this movie. I just it's my I I've agreed now. I was kind of on the fence before, but it is my favorite Dennis Quaid in a father role. I really love him in the Parent Trap remake. Um yeah. as as the dad to Lindsay Lohan, but but I think this is this is yeah. This is definitely a more a more favorite fatherly role for of mine for for Dennis Quaid, so yeah, and Dennis Quaid's just so likable anyways. It's he hard to really dislike him is. in anything. He's so charismatic. Yeah, that was the last thing I wanted to say. Okay, well, with that, we wrap up the discussion at the end of the official third episode of Cinescope. Remember, you can contact the podcast directly on Facebook at facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast or on Twitter at Cinescope Pod. 
again, please rate and review on iTunes. That is such a big help to us. I'm not going to say anything else about it right now. Just please. I I love you for it. It'd be awesome. I will also love you for it. Yes. See, I mean, and everybody wants Eric to love you. <laughs> let's 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 uh, let's rally the troops. We're gonna all make reviews of this podcast. This is great. I'm gonna share this on all my social. Awesome. Remember, you can also email feedback and ideas to thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. And also, if you're interested in co-hosting, if you have a movie that you love that you think you could talk about for 45 minutes to an hour or however long, let me know. I would love to talk a movie with anybody. That's sort of the goal of this podcast. We're just talking about movies we love, no matter what the movie is. Eric, if people want to find you on the internet, where can they do that? The best thing to do uh, for finding me is on Twitter. I am uh, at Spielerman, S-P-I-E-L-E-R-M-A-N. And I'm, I'm on there pretty much every day, if not tweeting, then reading tweets. But that's the easiest way. I have a Facebook page uh, that I don't update all of that often due to my many podcasting commitments. But yeah, Twitter's Twitter's absolutely the best way. And uh, definitely check out, again, Improvised Star Trek, which I edit for them. That is a bi-weekly Star Trek podcast for you big fans of Star Trek who may be out there. Uh, or just improv comedy. It's a uh, an office comedy set in space. Uh, so I think you'll you'll appreciate it. There's so much for everybody in there. That's yeah, definitely check out Improv Star Trek. Yeah, definitely check out Eric everywhere you can. Like I said, I've been listening to Eric talk about Harry Potter specifically for a very long time. And I have other podcasts, including the Star Wars uh, Resistance Radio and probably even Alohomora here in the near future uh, that I want to listen to. So definitely go check those out and give give Eric some love. Well, thank you. Uh, and I, Chad, I really want to thank you for having me on the show. I was so thrilled to to get that email and be asked, and I loved the opportunity to talk about this movie that I love. I love the premise uh, of this show, and I think it's absolutely what the world needs now, is to talk about the things that we love with each other. Yes, thank you, Eric. It was equally as thrilling for me to receive a response from you and uh, hear how excited you were to be on, and maybe, hint, hint, again on in the future. I would love that, dude. Anytime. Awesome. As for me, you can find me on Twitter at Chadadada, that is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A, also on Facebook.com slash Chad Hopkins. And something I forgot to mention last week, I have brought back my written movie entertainment media review site, Chad Likes Movies. Nice. Uh, This is the original website that I started back in 2012. It's still been sitting around. I hadn't updated it since probably 2014, but it is back along with Cinescope. And I am writing written reviews of everything we talk about on the show. So you can find written reviews of Back to the Future and Tron Legacy and Star Trek II. And there will be a post over Frequency. And any other movies I'll be watching, I'll try to write a review of as well. There was a review of Suicide Squad posted last week. I read that. It was good. Thanks, Eric. So if you're interested in reading that and hearing my opinion, which I'm not going to discuss on the show for reasons that will become apparent if you read that review... You can definitely do that at chadlikesmovies.com. Now, all of these show notes, all of this contact information is in one really easy to find and easy to read place. That is thecinescopepodcast.com. That's where you can find all of this and get in contact. And that is all for this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening to episode three. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode four. Have fun and celebrate movies. (laughs) 